All right, so have you, have you ever noticed that we become like who and what we admire? Have you ever noticed this? It happens with our clothing. If any of you have a favorite team, you probably have some gear in your drawer that shows what your favorite team is. It's why fashion trends catch on and spread because we become like those we admire. How you dress is tied to what or who you admire. It's expressed through how we talk as we can oftentimes imitate people that we admire. It's expressed through tattoos. How you design your house. The bumper stickers you put on your car. It's a reflection of who you are. It's a reflection of who you admire and look up to who you identify with, maybe by the stickers you put on your computer or on your water bottle or on your locker. I mean, how often does it, do young singers imitate their favorite singer? How often do young athletes imitate their favorite player's swing or shot or sneakers or style of play? Even the nonconformists end up looking ironically alike we become like what we admire now this is either a good dynamic if who and what we admire is truly admirable or it's a bad dynamic if we admire folly and superficiality and especially if we're worshiping God's substitutes okay so Psalm 115 shows us the danger of this dynamic when it comes to idolatry. So Psalm 115, three to nine says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Their idols, in contrast to the true and living God, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And then look at the language here. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, they do not make a sound in their throat. You can. Think about these little idols, and they're just mute, deaf, dumb, you know, blocks of wood or whatever. And don't write this off as, oh, yeah, those ancient pagans, you know, were dumb enough to bow down to a statue. We can all have God substitutes. Money can be a God, and money is deaf and dumb. It's just a thing, right? And it's all the stuff that you can buy with it. It can't do anything for you on your deathbed. So, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. If you trust in something other than a living God, if you have an idol that you're trusting in, you will become just as spiritually dead and blind and deaf and dumb and like dull as that idol. So verse nine then, oh Israel, trust in the Lord. Like trust in the real God. He is your help and your shield, okay? So we become like what we admire. If you worship, bow down to, you know, whatever that substitute God is, you will become just as spiritually deaf and insensitive as those false gods. 
So keep that in mind as we consider our text this morning. Um, we're going to look at Mark 8, 1 to 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, um, you can find that on page 843 in the Pew Bible or, yeah, actually that's probably best because I don't think the text will be on the screen here. Um, <clears throat> so if you haven't been with us, Mark's Gospel We've been walking through it kind of section by section. And Mark's gospel is like at the big picture level divided into two parts, okay, two main parts. And we are, ne we are nearing the end of the first act. So next week's text, Mark 8, 2 to 38, is the hinge really on which the book turns. And Jesus will be heading decisively to Jerusalem and to the cross after chapter 8. Okay, we've called this series King and Cross, Mark is all about the identity and the mission of Jesus. He's the king, and the cross is at the center of why he came. The person of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus. We could say it that way, okay? So that's the big picture and where our text fits into the flow of the book. So as the first half of the book comes to a close, what we're seeing here is the disbelief of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. They are becoming increasingly hostile toward Jesus. And then, so maybe that's not too surprising, but surprisingly, we see the misunderstanding and the unbelief of the disciples as well. So Mark 8, 1 to 21 starts out with the feeding of 4,000. Josh mentioned that earlier. And it's very similar to the feeding of the 5,000, which took place back in chapter 6, though there are some key differences, and we'll take note of those. All right? So let's look at this um, beginning with the first point, verses 1 to 10, the meaning of the miracle meal, which is the second miracle meal, right? The first one was back in chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000. Now here's the second miracle meal, the feeding of the 4,000. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered, again, kind of reminds you of the first feeding back in chapter 6. So in those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, so we'll see in just a second that they've been with Jesus for three days, so their provisions have run out. They had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me. Now, three days. This shows the commitment of this crowd. Like, they're really with him. They are, they really want to be with him, and, and they've kind of um, shown that commitment even to the point of being, you know, without food. They've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed or satisfy, literally, these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. Same verb as back in verse four. How can one feed or how can one satisfy this many people in this desolate place? Well, Jesus just did it. They ate and they were all 
satisfied. They just didn't have like a little crumb. They had, they're all full. And they took up broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Um, actually, it's, it's possible. So if you remember back to chapter six, there were 12 baskets full, right? Different word for basket in that section. Those baskets were kind of like shallow. This basket was big enough for Paul. This word is used um, when Paul was let down. You know, he was uh, under persecution and they wanted to kill him. And so at night they let him down in a basket so that he could escape. You guys remember that story? It's this kind of basket. So it's quite possible that even though there are fewer baskets, there may have been more leftovers with this meal than even the previous. Okay, so again, just speaking of Jesus' ability to provide an abundance. Okay? So there is a pretty masterful structure to chapters 6 to 8, and I think it's worthwhile to take a look at this. So hopefully, yeah, Chad was able to put this on, on um, a slide. So notice the parallels here in this section. Feeding of the multitude, it's the 5,000 in chapter 6, the 4,000 in chapter 8. Then immediately following that, there's a crossing of the, feet of the sea. And these, are, these all have significance because Jesus goes from Jewish area to the Gentile area. Um, and then there's conflict with the Pharisees in both cases. Verses 1 to 23, we looked at a couple weeks ago. And then we'll see the conflict with the Pharisees in verses 11 to 13 today. And then there's a conversation about bread. And then there's a healing, which in chapter 7, it was the man who was deaf, right? And Jesus put his fingers in his ears and, and healed his deafness and muteness. And then next week, we'll look at the fact that he heals a blind man. And then there's a confession of faith. It was the Syrophoenician woman in 737. And we'll see that it's Peter saying that Jesus is the Messiah next week when we look at 8, 27 to 30. So we'll come back to why that's important, but there are lots of similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, okay? But the differences are actually where the significance lies for our understanding here this morning, okay? So you're gonna need to kind of like have your, your passage open here. Look back at Mark 6, 34. This is the first point of difference that is significant and worth noting. I won't note all the differences, but just draw a, a couple to our attention. So in Mark 6:34, he went when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So the reason for his compassion was cuz they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? And then his response was to teach them. The feeding was subsequent to that. Now, look at chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. I have compassion on the crowd because they're hungry. Okay? So that's different. It's their physical hunger and, and their need that draws out his compassion, and so he feeds them. So let's put this together now. So what? Why are you 
making this point, Chris. Okay. Isn't this a pointer to a lesson that the church has oftentimes been slow to learn throughout history? How many times in history has the church either focused almost solely on teaching and evangelism at the expense of meeting practical physical needs or focused almost exclusively on meeting practical physical needs and downplaying the need for evangelism and teaching. Do you see? And sometimes there's been pendulum swing reactions like you have early fundamentalism and maybe too much I mean, you can't focus too much on the gospel and evangelism, but if you are trying to tell the gospel to somebody who is like starving to death, give them something to eat first, and then they'll have ears to hear what you have to share, right? And then you have the reaction, and you get a social gospel with liberal Christianity that kind of downplayed the importance of the gospel and focused all on social issues, And oftentimes the church has just gone back and forth on this rather than holding these things together, which is what Jesus does here, okay? So let's not fall off the horse on either side. You know, the saddle is greasy, but Jesus can keep us on the saddle rather than falling off into the ditch of just being focused on evangelism and sharing the gospel and not on meeting practical needs or vice versa, okay? Jesus does both here, and he does it based on the needs of the people, right? Which is, what is that? It's called love. It's neighbor love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You don't need to, like, first preach the gospel to the guy laying in the gutter, bloodied and dying. Take care of his body and get him somewhere where he can heal, and then... You can minister to his soul. So the call to love holds both of these things together, not one without the other, but doing all the good we can to all the people we can, temporal and eternal good. All right? So that's one thing to notice, and seeing that structure is helpful in comparing the two different feedings. Second thing we should note is how this feeding of the 4,000 foreshadows the scope of Jesus' mission. Remember, Jesus, um, Mark's gospel is all about the person of Christ and the mission of Christ. So he didn't just come for the Jews. He came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. Okay, so remember the feeding of the 5,000 was a Jewish audience. And then he goes across the lake and the feeding of the 4,000 is primarily a Gentile audience or a Gentile group, okay? The crowd is primarily Gentiles. And you can see how that is foreshadowing what Jesus came to do. He's not coming just to feed the bodies and souls of Jews only, but people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation Like that heavenly praise of the worthiness of King Jesus in Revelation 5, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we can take this for granted at this point. Yeah, we know that. We know that Jesus died for people 
from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. But think about how important this was at the start of the mission. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Jews thought they were unclean and they were, you know, dogs and, you know, stay away from them. If you want to be holy, you have to separate from them. Remember Peter, even after the resurrection in Acts 10, didn't want to go and meet with Cornelius, that Roman centurion or Roman soldier. Jewish Christians were suspicious and skeptical of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. If you read Acts, you see this. So think about it. If you were a non-Jew in the first century and the Apostle Paul comes into town to preach Jesus, and if you have a soft, open heart toward God, you might wonder, can Jesus save me? Like, can his mercy extend to us? And think of how encouraging it would be to see the story, to hear the story of the Syrophoenician woman to see how he went to Gentile areas, not caring that the Pharisees would be like, oh, you're going to these unclean places and, you know, all of that. No, he went directly to them. He fed 4,000 Gentiles, mostly Gentiles at least. How encouraging would that be to see how Jesus treated the outsiders? You would realize there's a place for me at this table. I can be a part of the family of God. Outsiders are becoming insiders. So you can see how important that is. And, you know, it's not something that's just a lesson for back then. We can get really tribal. There can be people that we don't like. We can have a Jonah-like heart. And God's mercy and compassion is broad, and it's for every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Jesus came to satisfy the deepest needs of all peoples. He is the bread of life and living water for all peoples. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes. There are no boundaries to the scope of this mission. There is more than enough in Jesus to feed every hungry soul. So one commentator, James Edwards, underlines this point. He said, the journey of Jesus to Tyre and Sidon, which we looked at last week in the Decapolis, proves that although the Gentiles are ostracized by the Jews, they are not ostracized by God. The heart of God is being revealed here. Jewish invective against the Gentiles does not reflect a divine invective. There's a lesson here for the people of God in every age that its enemies are neither forsaken by God nor beyond the compassion of Jesus. On the contrary, the Gentiles, like others, quote, a long distance away, are the objects of Jesus's compassion. So the fact that it moves from the 5,000 Jewish audience to 4,000 Gentile audience is revealing the purpose of the mission of Jesus to satisfy people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He came for everyone. So this this, um, feeding of the 4,000, just like the feeding of the 5,000, you know, this banquet in the wilderness, it's also a foreshadowing of the Last Supper. Did you hear it in the language? Look at verse 6 of Mark 8. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took 
the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Does that sound familiar? Look ahead to Mark 14, 22. This is the last supper with his disciples. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. So this is a, an echo, a foreshadowing of the Passover meal. Jesus is the host, and he's going to lay down his life to feed his people, and that people is going to come from every trung, tongue and tribe and people and nation. So again, it's a foreshadowing of the new covenant, and participation in the Lord's table will not be a matter of being Jewish by birth. It's going to be a matter of the new birth, trusting Jesus for right standing with God. New Passover, new covenant meal, all peoples made clean by the blood of the lamb shed for the forgiveness of our sins. All right? So there's a few things that we need to see there with the feeding miracle in those first 10 verses. Now remember that structure. You saw that slide with the structure. The miracle meals in both cases, after chapter 6 and here in chapter 8, they're followed up with opposition from the Pharisees. So let's look at the opposition of the Pharisees in verses 11 to 13, testing and testing. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. What's going on here? Well, first off, this is like really strong language. In verse 11, it says the Pharisees came. That verb for came can have military connotations. You could translate it, they came out like, like an army coming out against another army. So they began to argue with Jesus, not debate for the sake of understanding, but arguing and disputing because they want to discredit him. So they're seeking a sign, but it's really all to test him, okay? I mean, good grief, he just fed 5,000 and 4,000. He'd given them a sign. I mean, if you want to talk about the meaning of a sign, a sign is different than a miracle. But you remember the healing of the paralytic when his friends led him down through the ceiling? He said, your sins are forgiven. And then there was a sign to confirm what he had said. So there have been plenty of miracles. There have been signs pointing to who Jesus is. But these guys have already made up their minds. In fact, we learned back in chapter 3 that they have already committed to killing Jesus. Remember, they, they've already attributed Jesus' power to Satan. Ah, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So when they ask for a sign, they're not seeking a miracle per se, but some divine confirmation of Jesus' truthfulness and legitimacy not because they're open to it but because they're looking for evidence against him kind of an angle to justify their determination to put him to death they're testing him but in doing so in seeking to test him they've actually failed the test so I, I think I shared this several years ago I mean maybe more than several, but it bears repeating here. One of my seminary professors, D.A. Carson, um, shared this in class once, I think it was, and I think it's in one of his books, but I couldn't find where it is. Um, he tells a story about some hippies in the Louvre. 
okay? So does everybody know where the Louvre is? It's in one of the most famous museums in the world. It's in Paris, right? Got some of the most famous masterpieces of art. So picture three hippies. Nothing against hippies. I'm just recounting the story. You know, hippies are cool. Um, so there's these three hippies. We'll just make them all men because we're going to make fun of them. So that'll be easier. Um, so they're visiting this famous museum and they walk by the Mona Lisa, works by Da Vinci, Raphael, Caravaggio, Michelangelo. And all the while, they're just like rudely talking. They're making fun of these works with snide remarks, critical remarks. And the curator of the museum is growing increasingly irritated at them and finally he's had enough. So he approaches them and says, gentlemen, in this museum, it is not the paintings that are being tested. Did you get it? Okay. They are masterpieces. If you criticize the masterpieces, who are you? You're not testing and, you know, giving an F mark to Michelangelo. You're actually showing your own folly. You fail the test. So it's not the masterpieces that are being tested. It's your taste and wisdom that's being tested. So it is for the Pharisees here. They're not testing Jesus. They are being tested and they're failing by trying to put Jesus in the dock and test him. So Jesus sighs. It's grief and it's indignation. Just like back in chapter three, do you remember? when it was on the Sabbath and there was the man with the withered hand and he said, he had to say to these Pharisees, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? And they wanted to say, no, 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 no. And he looked around angry, grieved at their hardness of heart. Angry, grieved. And there's indignation and there is grief here in chapter 8. And then his response is very sobering. Essentially, he shakes the dust off of his feet and walks away from them. Look at verse 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. You don't have, like, indefinite opportunities to turn and trust in Jesus. At some point, if you keep stiff-arming him, he will give you up to your will. I once met regularly, actually, with a guy who had grown up in the church, in a Christian home. He went to Christian school. He was involved. And then after high school, he drifted and he was partying, and one night, late, 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 he got into a bad accident and became a paraplegic. And I visited him in the hospital, and then after he got home, I visited him regularly. We'd have lunch together, and we read books and had all these long talks, and 
lots of conversations about God and the Bible and the truth of the gospel. But he had completely swung to an almost polar opposite worldview from the one he grew up with. I mean, I remember one time we were talking about the possibility of miracles. You know, he rejected not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the possibility of the resurrection of Jesus. So he didn't believe they were possible, miracles in general. And so I asked him if if he would believe one if he experienced it firsthand. And he kind of considered it for a moment because he's a thoughtful guy. And he said, no. He'd already made up his mind and no evidence to the contrary would convince him. So I, I hope the story is not over for him, but that's a scary place. And I pray that none of you are there now. And I would encourage all of us to beware the impulse to test the Lord. So to ask, or should I say demand, signs from him to prove his reality can start to get on dangerous ground. Listen, let me be careful here. Can we humbly ask him to make himself real to us? Absolutely. Right? We can struggle all the time. I believe. Help my unbelief. We'll see that soon in chapter 9 of Mark. And that's commended. That's beautiful. Can we plead with him to help us experience the power of his love and his grace? I mean, we were singing along those lines this morning. Absolutely. But let's not turn away from the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection and the promises with a, yeah, 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 I know all that. But what I really want you to do to prove yourself is... That impulse we need to be aware of, which is what, where Jesus goes next with his disciples. He warns them. So look at point number three, beware and believe, verses 14 to 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So, I mean, this would be funny if it wasn't sad and a dangerous place to be. Thus, the warning, beware. I mean, it's not funny. Like, their argument is so petty and childish, they've totally missed Jesus' infinitely more important point. So they've just experienced two crazy bread miracles. Not crazy bread. That's someplace else. But crazy bread miracles. And they're worrying about no bread in the boat. It's like fretting about a spot on your clothes when the house is on fire. Like, who cares? Get out of the house. They're more worried about bread than the influence of the Pharisees. They're more worried about their lack of bread when they should be worried, concerned about their lack of understanding and faith. So if you were here last week, you saw the stark contrast with the Syrophoenician woman. 
she is this pagan and she has a short conversation with Jesus and understands more of who he is and why he came in that encounter than it seems the disciples in all this time of being together with Jesus. And they were there for that encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. Like, didn't they even get it, like, through her getting it? Did they learn nothing? Like, how could they not, not understand? So Jesus is warning the disciples, beware the leaven. A very small amount of leaven has a pervasive and significant influence. And it's a metaphor here for corruption. So the Pharisees, they are hardened in their disbelief. The disciples need to watch out and be alert. They aren't hardened in disbelief like the Pharisees. But their unbelief and their lack of understanding should bother them. They're on a dangerous trajectory. So James Edwards writes this. The disciples are unaware of their actual condition. The danger is the more deceptive in their case since they are daily in contact with Jesus. And as in the case of Jesus' mother and brothers, the fact that they are in physical proximity with Jesus may lead them to presume they are also with him in mission and purpose. Their proximity to Jesus must grow into understanding and understanding into faith or else like Judas it will, in the end, inoculate them to the meaning of his person and work. Look what Jesus says to them. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Did you, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? That's an allusion back to Isaiah 6, which is a description of the Israelites in Isaiah's day. Their hearts were hardened. They were spiritually dull because they, were, they had become like what they admired. They were bowing down to false gods, their idolatry had hardened them, had made them spiritually blind and deaf and dull because you become like what you admire. So that's sobering. They needed to heed that warning. We need to heed that warning. But there's also some good news. There's like this pinprick of light here that we need to see. We need to see how patient and gracious Jesus is with these slow-to-learn disciples. So zoom out a little bit. Notice there are two healings on either side of this section. What are they? We looked at one last week. The deaf and mute guy, right? And then if you skip ahead in chapter 8, what's the very next healing? Verse 22 and and following. He's going to give sight to a blind man. Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? He healed the deaf man. He's going to heal the blind man. And so basically, what's going on, these two healings around this lack of understanding and perception, they're living pointers to the fact that Jesus is going to unstop the disciples' ears and open their eyes. And there's a little word that reinforces this point. Did you notice it? It's repeated twice in verses 17 to 21. A word, three letters, filled with hope for future change and understanding and spiritual perception. Look at verse 17. It's the word yet. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? And then down in verse 21, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? The point is, they will. It will take the cross and the resurrection, but it will come. They will understand. 
and the Spirit poured out. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember, their eyes will be opened, their ears will be unstopped, their hearts will burn with understanding and faith. And so, for us, so I ask, we should all ask, last point, has the penny dropped? You familiar with that expression? So it's a phrase apparently coined Okay, just making sure you're awake still. Um, Phrase apparently coined by a British publication back in 1930 when a penny could actually do something like operate, you know, a toy machine or a candy machine or whatever. Okay, so maybe you've had this happen with the vending machine. You know, you drop in the money, nothing happens, and you go, whack. I'm sure none of you have ever done that, but maybe you saw somebody do it. And the quarters drop, and then it comes alive and spits out your Diet Coke or whatever. So it's an expression that we use today. Someone has an aha moment. They finally get it. They understand. So when it comes to trusting and following Jesus, the penny drops, not simply when you learn information about Jesus in Awana or VBS or from your parents or by attending church or even by reading the Bible. The penny drops when you see by faith with spiritual eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You see your need of a Savior, and you see his sufficiency as the Savior, and you run to him and trust in him and turn from your sin. The penny drops when you hear the words of God and you realize he's speaking to you, and you internalize those words and respond to them in faith. The penny drops when you taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, so why is this the last point this morning? You see what's happening here with the disciples? Proximity doesn't equate to true perception. It doesn't automatically equal that. They've been with Jesus Jesus for how long now? I mean, he's about to head to Jerusalem. Probably a couple years already, right? Maybe almost the full three years. They've seen some crazy, miraculous things. Demons cast out with the word. More healings than they could count. You know, by this time, fever's gone. Lepers cleansed, paralyzed, raised to walk, withered hand restored, blind can see, deaf can hear, mute tongues that speak, 12 years of bleeding, healed at the touch of his garment, the daughter raised from, dead, from, from death, the calming of the storm with a word, Jesus walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, and they still don't understand. So we've heard baptisms recently, Lydia Brown, Piper Meyer, growing up in the Christian family and in the church, and sometimes it takes time and a particular experience when all this truth that's been piled up in mind, the Spirit finally makes it real, and the penny drops. The Christian life is a miracle, not merely a set of propositions to which you give mental assent. The Christian life is all about real relationship with a real person, a glorious triune God of love who is our heavenly father and Jesus, our lover, our husband, laid his life down for his bride, the church. Jesus is our brother. (coughs) He's our king. The spirit is our counselor. He's our friend. The Christian life is not a formula or a sequence of do's and don'ts. 
We could say beware the leaven of mechanical or formulaic Christianity. Beware the leaven of trying to be a pretty good Christian without knowing and trusting Jesus and being empowered by his grace and by his spirit. So proximity doesn't equate to true perception, true understanding. So the question is, are you going through the motions or do you believe? Has the penny dropped? There is danger in being close to Jesus but not being united to Jesus. It's like the Israelites in the coming out of Egypt, right? They saw all kinds of signs and wonders. Ten plagues, parting of the Red Sea, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, miracle manna to feed them, water out of the rock. Their clothes didn't wear out and yet they wanted to go back to Egypt. The penny didn't drop and they fell in the wilderness. They were in close proximity to God and his grace. He revealed his glory over and over again, but they didn't believe, (laughs) and they fell. So I want to just close with the warning and the encouragement from Hebrews chapter 3 because it basically makes this point and applies it to us. So if the musicians want to make their way up here for our closing response songs, Listen carefully to these words from Hebrews 3 in the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and and he's quoting Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They saw his works for 40 years. But they didn't believe. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They've not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he then turns and applies it to us. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Wasn't it all those who left Egypt? led by Moses. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They had seen all kinds of signs and wonders, but they didn't believe. The disciples, close proximity, but they didn't understand. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So has the penny dropped? Or are you just going to church? Just going through the motions? There is a world of difference between knowing information about the sweetness of honey and actually tasting it. Veneer Christianity is dead and deadening. Real faith in the real Jesus gives life to you and then gives life to others through you. So I hope none of us need this warning. But if this warning is here, I would be derelict in my calling if I don't warn us because this kind of thing can happen. So dear church, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, humbly seek his grace by the power of the Spirit, and let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's come to him and we will be satisfied. Let's believe in him and we will not thirst. 
So we're gonna close with two songs in response. The first is Jesus Strong and Kind. And if you're convicted, if you have just noticed whether you've never come to Jesus and it's more so you've been going through the motions or maybe you've seen that you've been drifting and you've gotten hardened, you can come to Jesus. He is strong and kind. Let this song minister to you and become your prayerful response to this wonderful Savior. Let's sing.